Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Nat Alliance Now. I'm your host today. I'm Paul Martin, Director of Academic Content here at the National Alliance for Insurance Education and Research. And it's a real pleasure today. We're being joined by two really interesting folks from Lloyd's of London, Victoria Lane out of London and Hank Watkins out of New York. Uh, welcome, both of you. I'm really glad you joined us today. Thank you. Victoria, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Lloyd's of London? So I'm an archivist and I've been at Lloyd's for just over a year now. And I was brought in to look after and manage the collection. And also in response to Black Lives Matter, Lloyd's made an ethnicity commitment to get an archivist to look at our historical connections to the transatlantic slave trade. So that's also what I'm doing. That's very interesting. And we also have Hank Watkins. Hank, tell us about yourself and your role at Lloyd's. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having us. I'm really glad to be here with you and your listeners today and with my colleague, Victoria, over in London. I'm based in New York for Lloyd's, and, and my role is regional director and president of the Americas, which includes Canada, the U.S., Latin America, and the Caribbean. That's about 62% of Lloyd's global premium. Wow. And, and is, is, yeah, and historically, uh, the U.S. and Canada have been the largest territories for Lloyd's outside of the U.K. A lot of that goes back in history, which we'll talk about later on today in the podcast. But again, thrilled to be here and look forward to having a good conversation. Well, we're really glad that you're here joining us. Let's start with the history. And I know both of you can add to this discussion. Give us, give our audience, how did this whole thing get going? How did Lloyd's get started? What's the old story behind it? So Lloyd's really started off as a coffee house and coffee houses started to emerge in the 1650s. So way back then. and The first reference to Lloyd's is actually in 1688 in the London Gazette. But coffee houses were seen as a good place to do business rather than the alternative, which were pubs. And uh, people would come in and they would, in Edward Lloyd's coffee house, they would pay to use a table and then they could transact their business there. That's interesting. So we started off in Tower Street which if you think is near the Tower of London, which is right near the river. So all those connections to maritime, the maritime industry were were being made there. And then we moved in 1691 to Lombard Street. And of course, that recalls Lombardy was the centre of finance and it actually introduced the idea of insurance. So we moved to the insurance hub and then... We had a break-off group 100 years later in the uh, late 18th century. A break-off group? What did that? Yes. So in in 1769, a group of insurers, uh, underwriters and brokers, became uh, disillusioned with some of the practices in Lombard Street, which uh, was seen as basically fraudulent and based on gambling. So there were things like stock jobbing, betting on the markets, and also just betting on things like people's lives. And they wanted to remove themselves from that and determine a sort of an insurance that was uh, more reputable. So they decided to form a subscription society and they called it New Lloyd's Coffee House. And uh, the Lombard Street Coffee House, unfortunately, 
made the worst branding decision and called themselves Old Lloyd's Coffee House. And they published on that. But New Lloyd's Coffee House is really the foundations of what we are today. And we moved from this informal coffee house to a subscription society based on membership. How interesting. That's funny because when we teach insurance to brand new people, we'll often reference that the concept of insurable interest goes back to people betting on people dying, you know, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to bet on people dying. So, but that's fascinating that you, you recalled that. Well, what was it that, um, Lloyd started out just maritime primarily. When was the big shift when it became more than? Well, it wasn't really until the later 19th century that it was diversified. And and that was largely to do with Cuthbert Heath who diversified the whole market into things like employers' liability, hurricanes, earthquakes, burglary, and and actually the American market was something that he fermented, which Hank knows all about. But prior to that, Lloyds are in quite an unusual position because in 1720, there was something called the South Sea Act, and that meant that you couldn't actually have a company unless you had a royal charter and there were only two royal charters to transact marine insurance business and that was with the London Assurance Company and the Royal Exchange Assurance Company. So Lloyd's basically created a marketplace of individuals in which they were able to transact business But we think by the end of the 18th century, it was 90% of the marine insurance business. So we were really dominant in that area right right the way through. And it's still there in our business, but it's it's obviously not as dominant. (laughs) Well, not dominant now at all. I had a question about the way I understand it, that individual individual investors in Lloyd's, what they call, I guess, underwriters, you'd call them names, went through a transition at some point. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but how does, it seems like it used to be very individualized where people put their personal property, their personal assets at risk to back the, the insurance, and then it shifted at some point. When, when did that happen and why? Well, I can start to answer this question. Basically, up to 1800, it was quite free form, and then they decided to close off membership just to underwriters, brokers, and merchants. And basically, Lloyd's, as um, it's, it became a corporation in 1871, and then the rules got a bit more rigid, and underwriting members were elected by Lloyd's. So you have the market and then the corporation. So it's a very unusual structure. It's not a normal corporate structure at all. And these underwriting members represent certain investors' names. And that stayed quite small until the 1860s. Um, And they would provide capital on the basis of unlimited liability. And that continued on until the 1980s when there were a series of quite significant disasters in the world, natural disasters, hurricanes, and also the asbestos claims as well. And then lots of these people started to, well, they lost huge amounts of money. So it wasn't 
entirely certain that Lloyd's would continue, but Sir David Rowland actually reformed, reconstructed and renewed Lloyd's. And from 1994 onwards, we were only allowed corporate members to stop this problem of unlimited liability and that sort of massive loss ever happening again. But Hank will know more about this. Yeah, it's it's a great uh, question, Paul, because I was a broker actually back in the 80s and 90s. And, and one of our biggest challenges was to convince U.S. clients, global clients actually, to, to remain with Lloyd's because uh, it, it had been for over a century uh, one of the key markets for the U.S., certainly economy, especially in the surplus line space. And the big challenge, as Victoria alluded to, was there were a number of disasters. There was the a Piper Alpha oil platform disaster in the North Sea. We had a Hurricane Andrew in 1992 in Florida. U.S. asbestos litigation, uh, as well as environmental litigation, a lot of things coalesced uh, in the London and Lloyd's marketplace and, and essentially drove a lot of individual investors out of the market with the uh, severe losses. Wasn't the uh, Exxon, the Exxon Valdez, were y'all part of that too? It, sure, we would have been part of that. I don't recall the date of that, but uh, suffice it to say, there were a lot of issues. And at the time, there were there were three or four hundred syndicates operating in the Lloyd's market. Now there are about ninety in any given year. Mm-hmm. And at, at the time, the corporation who Victoria and I work for, and is really the, the platform where underwriting expertise and capital combined to to form form the marketplace. There wasn't oversight of the activities going on in the market, so. The, the syndicates that were, were able to pretty much do whatever they wanted to. And, and for many years, that individual investor made a lot of money and, until he or she didn't. So now, because of re- reconstruction and renewal, as Victoria said, only corporate capital is allowed into the Lloyd's market. And that's primarily insurance companies, large global groups, uh, pension funds, and private equity firms. There's still about 8 or 9% of capital that comes from individual names, but they've had to uh, establish themselves as an LLC so that they aren't going to be losing everything should there be a, another problem. And I just want to point out, too, that now our performance uh, directorate in, in, at the corporation pays very close attention to the types of business Lloyd's underwriters are, are writing around the world. So we're not going to have this issue again of, of things getting out of control. Uh, we we, uh, we We certainly enable them to be innovative and creative. That's the hallmark of the Lloyd's market. But we pay very close attention to who's doing what. I understand that. You know, as an agent, years many years ago, I used Lloyd's, uh, writing oil and gas accounts and some offshore things, and and it was fascinating to watch it all work. And it seemed like this is mysterious thing that was going on, but I did watch it change too. And I think that's that's probably smart. I want to bring up this issue that that uh, Victoria mentioned about your reaction to what happened a couple of years ago and and some of the racial tensions and that kind of thing. Victoria, tell us again, what was, what was that all about? And what's the, what's the message of it from Lloyd's about slave trade and all that? Can we talk about that? Yes, sure. It, it, well, basically in 2020, George Floyd was murdered. And that led to a series of protests by, led by Black Lives Matter. And they started to target various corporations around the globe. And Lloyd's actually came out in support of Black Lives Matter because that went along with our diversity and inclusive kind of approach now. 
and Black Lives Matter came back to us and basically questioned us because as marine insurers, we would have been underwriting slave ships, which saw enslaved human beings as cargo or goods. So we were an essential part of the slave trade. And that kind of history has been disavowed for a couple of hundred years. And lots of people's connections to the slave trade has not been acknowledged. And so Lloyd's committed to employing an archivist in order to try and understand what our actual relationship to the the slave trade is through our records and through the objects and items in our collection. And we've actually found that because Lloyd's weren't actually transacting the business, we don't have a whole load of records that give the accounts of each of the ships that we insured that were slave ships. What we do have are fragments that were gifted back to us and that appear in the collection. Mm. So even though it sounds very minor, we actually have two risk books by separate underwriters, one in 1804 and one in 1807 to 8. And one of the underwriters is called Horatio Claget, and he was actually from Georgetown and was a tobacco merchant to George Washington, amongst others. But he was also over in London, and he was an underwriter too. And we have his wrist book, which details a number of these slave ship voyages that he was involved in, in insuring. How interesting. And what's, what has uh, Lloyds of London, you also mentioned, you mentioned about the inclusivity and equality initiative. Has Lloyds come out with a, a statement uh, on the whole issue? Yes. What's the position? What's the position of Lloyds? Basically, we apologized. Not everybody apologized. There was only Lloyds and I think Green King and a couple of other companies that apologized for their role. So that was quite significant. And, and then we made a number of commitments, one of which was to look into our history. And one of those commitments is to reach a one in three diverse employment target, which Lloyd's are leading and hoping to influence the market with. We also run something called the Accelerate Program to develop our black and minority ethnic leaders within the corporation and market, which has been very, very successful. And we're also going to announce some quite substantial donations to black charities alongside this work that we're doing which we're doing with in uh, collaboration with johns hopkins university in america which is quite exciting that's great thank you all for sharing that i think it's i think it's an important message to the whole industry and and it's certainly moving in good directions hank i want to turn to you you're in charge of this whole thing in north america latin america caribbean how big is how big is Lloyd's in the American market? Let's say, in in the U.S. market, Paul, we we are the largest surplus lines insurer. Have been for for many many years. Uh, and the surplus lines segment is about ten percent in any given year of the overall PNC marketplace. So it's certainly a very relevant component, and and it's it's there basically to uh, help launch new industries, new businesses that don't have a track record that the admitted market is comfortable with. 
It's also a place where buyers of insurance, both personal and commercial, go for capacity. And, and it's a marketplace uh, where people who can't find coverage elsewhere uh, will often turn to. They might have bad experience. Uh, like I said, there might be a new industry or they might just be doing something that the admitted market doesn't want to get involved in. How is your book balanced? Is personal versus commercial? It's it's about, it's less than 5% uh, personal. Okay. Uh, the majority of that would be uh, homes uh, along um, the coastal areas, uh, places where the standard market is not as comfortable riding. I know that y'all are a very important player in the Houston market, for example. In Houston, Texas is one county back from that line where they can exclude wind. And there's just a lot of homes there that need wind coverage. And, You're right. And I know that y'all fill an important hole in that marketplace. Throughout Harris County, absolutely. And, and along, you know, the, the and, and pick any coastline, right, especially in the Gulf, uh, we're big players there. Yeah. Uh, what's that in Alabama, the St. Stephen's baseline, anything above that? Uh, you're still in hurricane territory, but you're not close enough for, for the state markets. What's your biggest state in the United States in terms of premium? Historically, it's been Texas. Uh, a really? lot of it has to do with the energy business. But California, uh, just due to the sheer size of its economy, it's, it's fifth or sixth in the world. Last year became the largest state for Lloyd's, both from a, uh, primarily from a surplus lines insurance perspective, but also very large in reinsurance. That's a big component of our business as well here in the U.S. I actually got to interview somebody uh, not long ago that all they do all day is, play, is do aviation insurance and talked about how Lloyd's is, is so important in the aviation insurance industry, aerospace even. How big are y'all in, in that market? Again, globally, you know, if, 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 whether it's general aviation, uh, if, if, whether it's you know, the, um, the various uh, rockets, the private rockets that are going into space these days, all the satellite activities, certainly. Um, anything that flies uh, is, is oftentimes insured in the London market and more specifically in Lloyd's. Uh, it's, uh, you know, percentage-wise, it's not a big part of our global premium, but, but it's hmm. certainly, which is uh, interesting uh, to, to comment on, but it's, uh, we're a big player, of course, uh, throughout the industry. I remember, uh, uh, I think it was the Kobe Bryant crash, and that brought up this, these discussions and and how that capped off like a horrible three years of, you know, lost rockets, lost planes, you know, Boeing had those problems. And I just went, wow, <laughs> and premiums started going up. But uh, I just know it's an important part of y'all's uh, business, certainly. Well, Lloyd's underwrote the first ever aviation policy in 1911 as well. Who was that? Do you remember? I I don't know, but it was it was definitely part of Cuthbert Heath's kind of uh uh, portfolio and we also underwrote the first motor policy in 1904 and we called it because we didn't have the language for it we called it a ship navigating on land really yes that's fascinating <laughs> a ship you know I'm, I'm glad victoria brought that up because a lot of the uh, the first uh, in, in the uh, the world have been insured in lloyd's uh, the first dno policy for example you look back to 1934 and the Securities and Exchange Act, which followed the Great Depression, right. that, that made directors of publicly traded companies responsible for negligent acts, et cetera. Um, an enterprising Lloyd's underwriter realized there's an opportunity there. How can we transfer that risk to, uh, from boards of directors uh, who desperately need it to ourselves? And uh, just, just one of many examples of the first that ended up in the Lloyd's market. Now they're globally available coverages. You know, speaking of history in Lloyd's of London, I was doing some reading a few months ago, and I had not seen these details about how important Lloyd's of London was when the San Francisco fire. 
1906 or whatever that was, and how the way I remember reading it said that Lloyd's made a commitment. We are going to pay all the losses that we owe. And just that that public statement and the fact that everybody they got out there and started selling claims for property was huge. It was huge for the development of the Lloyd's reputation in America. There's actually a little bit more to that. It, um, I would hope we would pay all of our of claims that we are supposed to. Uh, it, it was uh, actually Cuthbert Heath, again, uh, was famous for saying, we'll pay all claims irrespective of, of their validity. And of course, we wouldn't do that now. We wouldn't be here if we did that. But it was an opportunity for, for Lloyd's earlier in their U.S. experience to establish a claims paying reputation uh, to help rebuild the city after that earthquake and fire. Yes. That was a big fire. Well, what, what's your biggest loss? Do, we, do you know what that is ever in, in America? Was it 9-11 or was it something else? I'd have to lean towards 9-11. Katrina was certainly large. Uh, Deepwater Horizon uh, that was, a bad. was a big one, certainly. Uh, the rig itself, uh, the environmental was primarily insured in the captive of, of BP. Uh, but 9-11, because if you think we, had, we insured the airplanes, the buildings, some of the life insurance um, fine arts, and you you name it. It was one of the biggest ever, certainly. But that led to, interestingly enough, the development of our realistic disaster scenarios approach to looking at aggregation of significant risk. We had modeled previously what it would look like for an aircraft to crash somewhere in Midtown, but of course, nobody ever anticipated what happened on 9-11. But that led us to develop a a, a wide-ranging view of what could possibly happen anywhere and how that might impact the Lloyd's market in the broader insurance industry, a lot of which we reinsure. Right. Well, that's good to hear too, because as a, you know, as a insurance professional myself, I remember after Katrina, when there was this fascinating thing that happened right after that, because it's like, uh Oh, all the models were wrong. You know, they, they just got it wrong and they had been making bets. You know, the insurers were making big bets on these models being accurate. And they were, it was so inaccurate that they had to throw those out and had to start over. And just like what you're talking about, really thinking ahead about what could happen and how bad it could be if it did. I, I love hearing that Lloyd's is on top of that. Okay, let's talk about today in, in North America and America specifically. What's Lloyd's wanting to do in the future in the U.S.? You, you mentioned the mysterious uh, a few minutes ago. And, and I, if there were one thing we could accomplish that would be success in my view is that nobody would ever look at Lloyd's as mysterious again. Um, I'd, I'd argue that it's, I mean, that was, that's kind of fun historical lore, yeah. but it really is a, an extremely relevant marketplace in the global economy. The thousands of distribution partners we have globally, whether they be brokers or cover holders, which are MGAs with binding authority, and we've got about 4,000 binders globally. There are a lot of ways to access Lloyd's, whether you're a homeowner, a small business owner, a large business owner, you know, a public entity, uh, an educational institution, uh, we insure them all. There are so many ways to access Lloyd's now, which are far easier than perhaps it was and even 20 years ago. So I just wanted to spell the mysterious part. It sounds cool, but it's, we're really not that mysterious. We're very transparent. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean <laughs> no, no, it that no. way. I just I always found it fascinating to, to watch it all operate and get the slip filled out. And it was mesmerizing. How many surplus lines agencies are is Lloyd's in in the U.S.? Oh, we're we're in all of them certainly. There are most MGAs. Uh, you know, they would have binding authority with a number of markets in the U.S. as well as Lloyd's. Uh, just because we to to fill out uh, a proposition that an MGA offers to their retail customers, you kind of have to have Lloyd's in there. 
Uh, there may be specialist uh, MGAs, for example, those that write cannabis, which Lloyd's does not insure in the U.S. We do in Canada because it's federally legal there, but it's it's still uh, a class one drug here in the U.S., so we stay away from that for now. Uh, but the majority of um, risks we we will uh, underwrite through these partners. Real quickly, I just uh, to I, there's so much uh, around the conversation that, that Victoria's uh, brought into this. You know, we were involved in the National African American Insurance Association here in the U.S. Um, a couple of my colleagues are, are very closely involved in that organization, which has done a terrific job of raising awareness of the industry in general to people in our, our society who historically had not been that familiar with it. So uh, that that's a big part of our vision, if you will. You asked about that, Paul, going forward. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's sort of business related, but more importantly, it's related to how we all need to be going forward. We're also uh, very much involved in the insurance industry charitable foundation, which is uh, about a 27-year-old now organization in about 20 chapters in the U.S. and U.K. that's very focused on bringing competitors together to, to raise funds and raise awareness, um, improve inclusivity and, and opportunities for underserved communities. Um, and it's, you know, selfishly, it's a way for us to remind people outside of our, of our industry how important our industry is uh, globally. We're not just folks collecting premium and, and showing up when there's a claim. Well, I certainly, I certainly preach that all the time. That insurance is critical to the economy functioning because it's so connected with banking and, you know, and, and growth and, and innovation and everything else. So you have to have insurance. And I, I really have loved having this conversation with you guys because, as you mentioned, bringing professionals together, bringing industry together. Isn't this a strange business where it's actually in your interest to be friends with your competitors? It's a really bizarre business. And, and I love the idea that that Lloyd's is just part of our American family when it comes to insurance. There are 28,000 independent insurance agents in this, in this country, 28,000. More, that's more than they have Starbucks. They're in every little town, in every county of every state. They're all, and not counting the state farm guys and the big direct writers, but you guys are so important. I know the independent agent community who's trying to get that placed, get that, that one piece of business placed somewhere. And it's good to know that you want to be part of their professional lives as much as a big broker's. I appreciate that. That is critical, Paul. And for all the listeners out there, again, you can access Lloyd's through your local wholesale broker, through, through an MGA typically. You can always contact us uh, for guidance on that. But I hope people take away from this conversation that we're, again, we're not mysterious. We're open for business. We're here to help. We have fully established claim TPAs and, and delegated claim administrators throughout the country. You know, we're working that uh, Ian uh, disaster very carefully right now. So don't feel that we're untouchable. No. We're there for you. I want to thank you guys once again for taking the time to talk to us. This will be seen by thousands of individual agents all over the country and maybe just gives them a little insight, maybe some curiosity about what Lloyd's can do for them as they seek to serve their customers. But thank you for taking the time, Victoria, Hank. It's great, great being with you. It's a great pleasure. And thank you very much for asking us. You're welcome. Thank you, Paul. And thanks to the National Alliance. All right. So everybody, this is the end of this Nat Alliance Now podcast. Be sure and check in again with us on One in the Future. I'm Paul Martin, and I hope everyone has a great day.